Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 23, Malfoy Manor. Harry looked round at the other two, now mere outlines in the darkness. He saw Hermione point her wand, not towards the outside, but into his face. There was a bang, a burst of white light, and he buckled in agony. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Kyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. And we're together! I know, I see you! <laughs> oh, I'm actually a little bit teary. I mean, it's really nice to be with people. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you who else was celebrating. Our fabulous patrons, Alyssa Sellers, Michelle Moynihan, Kelly Lubazuski, Sophie Thompson, and Dana. And of course, we want to shout out a local group, the Calgary Cauldrons. Ugh, we do love alliteration. It's run by Emily Hilton. and You can find out more about it and all of our local groups at harrypottersacredtext.com. Casper, it's your turn to tell a story through the theme of legacy. What have you got for us? So my parents are in the middle of moving house. A few years ago, my parents sold the childhood home that I grew up in, which was, you know, an emotional goodbye. And moving into a new place, it just doesn't have the same memories. It doesn't have that same sense of connection to my childhood, to my history. And so there are a couple of items of furniture that I have become really attached to because you know, it's a reminder of, of where I come from and especially pieces of furniture that don't just belong to my parents, but that have their own story. And in particular, a table. Now, this table belonged, I think, to my great, great uncle or maybe my great, great, great uncle who won the Nobel Prize and was very befriended with people like Marie Curie and Albert Einstein. 
And they played in a, you know, when they would all get together, of course, they were multi-talented. And so they would play in a little string quartet together. And there are these wonderful pictures of my great, great uncle's son, who became a, a relatively renowned Dutch artist, who has all these sketches of them playing in a string quartet together when he was like 10 or 12, he was drawing them. Anyway, this a scientist relative of mine was a wonderful scientist, not a great host. And so they would go to his brother's house for dinner, who is my direct relative. And so around this table sat Marie Curie and Albert Einstein. And so that table now was in my parents' living room. So I'm like very attached to this table because of course it's so fun to eat around a table and be like, maybe I'm sitting in the chair that Dr. Einstein sat in. And as the move happened, I was distraught that maybe the new house wasn't big enough for the table to fit in. Like it literally wouldn't maybe fit through the door. And so I was in constant communication with my mother to try and find a way for this table to go in, but it couldn't be like taken apart and put back together again. So it was like either it's happening or it's not. So the day that my parents move in, I'm on tenterhooks. I'm like, mom, is this table going to fit into the house? Because if it's not, they're going to have to sell it. Like I live in a small apartment. It's going to be years before I own a home. Like it's either this legacy piece is gone forever or there's the hope that it, you know, can live in my home one day. And I'm so thrilled to tell you that it fit into the basement. And so it's in storage for one day, hopefully, me to be able to host wonderful friends around and tell the story of Dr. Einstein and Dr. Curie. And so it just feels like I get to keep a legacy intact and to be able to feel part of this much longer generational connection that otherwise would have been cut off and it would have just been a memory. That is incredible. And I can't believe we are this many years into our friendship before I found this out about you. You know, I was keeping the big guns for book seven. What else do I not know about you? My grandma played for the Dutch tennis team. It's a small country. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, Casper. You know, I am not someone who used to think that items had legacies. Mm. And then I was in the Bronte sisters house and they've left the comb that Emily was holding when she passed away in like the area of the house where she would have dropped it when she passed away. And that comb made me cry. And there's something about knowing that certain people touch certain things. These little things can have legacies. And I think that that's pointing us to something very wise that I think we will see in this chapter. What legacy does Pettigrew's hand have, for example? Yeah. Not like the comb. No, different. So Casper, so much happens in this chapter. It has everything. It has like action adventure, recurring characters, a back baby. We have torture of underage children. Yeah. In Bellatrix's defense, Hermione's of age in the wizarding world. Oh, thank God. Yeah. Also Ron's deluminator. So many things. Okay, count me in. I'm going to do my best. All right, here we go. Silver-handed recap starting in three, two, one, go. So the Snatchers are like, is this Harry Potter? This might be Harry Potter. So they take him to Malfoy Manor and there's a lot of confusion. And Draco's like, oh, no, I guess that's Ron. And then they, um, Bellatrix is like, oh, my God, that's the sword of Gryffindor. Who broke into my vault? I'm going to torture Hermione. And Ron is like, no. And they get locked in the dungeon. And Luna is there. And then Peter Pettigrew goes down because there's a noise because Dobby has come because Aberforth sent him. And um, and they take Luna and Ollivander and all the rest of them out of there. And then Dobby is trying to save them. And Bellatrix kills Dobby and tortures Hermione. Wow, that was an incredibly good 30-second recap. But, and yet I still missed so many things. I feel like you didn't. I mean, I'll do my best to find something that you didn't say. Okay, I missed a thing or two. 
I'm ready to roll. Okay, on your mark, get set, go. So as they're being arrested, uh, Hermione transfigures Harry or, or makes him sting, stung, sting. So his face is all inflated, so he's unrecognizable. They get to Malfoy Manor where the Snatchers want their reward, and they're going to summon Voldemort. But Voldemort is about to kill some man in a cave somewhere or something, so it's all very confusing. And the, the trio gets sent down, except Hermione, down to the uh, place where they're going to be captured, and Draco's being difficult and like not identifying them, which is strange. And then Dra- um, and then Dobby appears to rescue them and goes away and then comes back and then they're fighting and Ron's like, no, save Hermione. And so they battle and then Dobby uh, stabbed. Sad. And there's this like argument about like, Dobby, how dare you go against your master? And Dobby is like, I am a free elf. I don't know if you heard. And I am here to save Harry Potter, comma, meanie face. And then it's just so dramatic. And there's like this rescue. And also Griphook lies that the sword is not goblin made. Like there's a lot of betwitching and betweening happening. I love this chapter. It's a great chapter. Yeah. So Casper, for this theme of legacy, I feel like the person we have to talk about first and foremost is Dobby. Mm. Right? Like he is just a hero in this chapter. And I, I do think that heroes are who we think about first when we're when we talk about legacy. Dobby just shows such heroism and such bravery. He must be so scared going into this house. He experienced so much trauma in this house. Talk about like a building or a table or whatever, having a legacy. This house has a legacy of oppression and trauma for Dobby. And yet he throws himself into it, not once, but twice, right? He keeps coming back to save people. And he has a legacy of saving everything that any of these people do for the rest of their lives, Hermione, Ron, Luna, Ollivander, they all have Dobby to thank for it. It's so funny because when I read this passage the first time, I was like, oh, Dobby coming with all these magical skills that's always been undermined and unrecognized. But I think you're right that actually he knows how dangerous this is, but he's doing it anyway. Like, I really noticed his courage this time because although he does have magical powers that have been underestimated, Bellatrix can and ultimately does inflict great pain and, and ultimately death on him. So he he knows what he's stepping into and he does it anyway. Yeah. And it's interesting how it's circular, right? Mm. Dobby is doing it because Harry Potter has done so much for him. And now Harry is going to do so much because Dobby does so much for Harry. Right. And that's the legacy I think that we should think about with Dobby as well, is that Dobby doesn't walk into the scene out of nowhere It's a legacy of friendship and kindness and encouragement that has led him not just to be able to do this, but to want to do it. There's a legacy of relationship between Harry and Dobby, but I feel like it's also beyond just Harry at this point. He knows Luna, he knows Hermione, he knows these people and considers them, I think, just like we've seen with Luna's, you know, magical chains, like these are Dobby's friends too. I'm wondering if you think that Aberforth in calling Dobby is living up to Dumbledore's legacy or if Aberforth is making his own legacy. Can you say more about that? Yeah. So Harry is like desperate. And so he pulls out this sliver of mirror that Dumbledore gave him and he sees, quote unquote, Dumbledore's eye, an eye that looks a lot like Dumbledore. And we find out later that it's Aberforth's eye. And he sort of shouts into the void of this mirror, like, help, we're in Malfoy Manor. We're stuck here. And, you know, we find out later that Aberforth is the one who sends Dobby we're sort of led to believe that Dumbledore is kind of doing this from the grave. But I'm wondering if Aberforth is doing this to honor his brother or if he's doing this on his own. This is really interesting. The thing that strikes me is that 
Dumbledore, so much of Harry's experience of him is his absence. It's like, where has Dumbledore gone? Why isn't he explaining things to me? And Aberforth, although he is actually absent, is present a lot through this little piece of mirror. So often when Harry looks in the mirror, he sees this glint of blue, right? He doesn't know that it's Aberforth's eye, but we do. And it just makes me think, how often does Aberforth have the other side of that mirror with him? I mean, it's like how we use our phones. Like <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Right? Like it's just a constant presence. And so I feel like I don't want to put Aberforth in Dumbledore's shadow. I want to say that Aberforth's own legacy is also one of care and commitment. And that's what we're seeing here. Yeah. And he's a bartender, right? I feel like he's someone who's used to looking at people, observing people and like answering to their needs, even as he might judge like, you don't need this fifth butter beer, but serves them anyway. I don't know. I feel like he has a legacy of looking at people, observing them and giving them what they ask for. And he's just been observing. And this is the first time that Harry has asked for help. And he's like, yep, I will send help. And maybe that is where I do see a connection then with Dumbledore, of course, with Forks coming in book two, right? That sense of like, when all hope seems lost. And also perhaps with the finding of the sort of Gryffindor for Ron, like there are these moments when, I don't know, maybe there is a presence of Dumbledore that is echoed in it. Just going back to Dobby, I want to bring in Griphook here as well, because we see Griphook being summoned from the dungeon to inspect the sort of Gryffindor to see if it's real or fake. And Harry pleads with him. I mean, Griphook is not in good shape. We don't even know if he's really like able to understand what's happening. And Harry says, please, please lie and say that it's fake. And he does, which is first of all, like a major moment because goblins are not known for their like, let me work with wizards. But then you see what Bellatrix does to him as soon as Griphook has done the job that she needs. Like she slashes his face, right? She just needlessly injures him across his face. And it's this legacy of supremacy that's weaponized onto Griphook and Dobby. I mean, she calls Dobby a dirty monkey. There's so many layers of this legacy. You pointed to the place, right? The house. We see it in the words, the language that's used. We see it in the violence inflicted. Like the whole place is just soaked in this legacy of supremacy. And what's interesting about Griphook is that he is helping Harry, but he is in part doing it to resist that legacy of Mm. supremacy. We know that he is going to say, well, actually, goblins made this and we're going to see this argument over ownership. So even though he happens to be allied with Harry in this moment, it is for totally different reasons. And it's for a moment of real resistance. Yeah, it's a liberation move from him. It's not a co-conspiracy move. Let's flip the script and see how that happens on the other side of this clash. Because Fenrir Greyback is among the snatches who finds the trio and is the one who makes the decision to go to Malfoy Manor. Now we see in the text that he has to explain to his fellow Snatchers that he doesn't have the dark mark. And so immediately you see that he is kind of a second-class citizen, even within the like Death Eaters cabal. And when he gets there, he is having to navigate being kind of subservient and lower status than the Malfoys. He's saying like, oh, Mr. Malfoy, we're going to remember that we were the ones who found it. And so you just see the way in which that legacy of supremacy even plays out among the supposed victors in this scene. I guess it just shows that like sometimes we look at systems of power or we we look at things as monoliths when actually there's much more difference and complexity within it that can be used to separate and weaken those structures of oppression. 
So can we move to Ron? Oh, Ron. I just, I love him so much in this chapter, especially. I love him always, everyone. <laughs> the way I show love is by holding people to a high standard. Don't I know it? <laughs> well, what do you, what do you love about Ron in this chapter? I think I love his desperation. Yeah. It's Harry says it too, right? Harry says that every time Hermione screams, it feels like he's being hurt. And I just feel like Ron is feeling that to an even higher level. And I just like to think he is screaming into a void, right? Like he is not stopping Bellatrix in any way. But I would like to think that Hermione can hear him and it's helping her stay focused mm. in a way that we would not judge her in the least if she, while being tortured, released information that helped the Death Eater fight. But she doesn't, right? She just keeps lying brilliantly. And I just want to believe that part of that was that she kept hearing Ron's voice uh, and therefore was able to say, like, I need to do this for Ron. Like, what are the things that I need to stay focused on? Right. It's just something outside of herself. And so it just makes me wonder about the times that I don't do something because it'll feel like screaming into a void. I'm like, I should do it anyway, because you never know. You know what's suddenly kind of resurrecting for me is the conversation we had with Stephanie way back in book two where she chose the word Ginny, Ginny, as her sparklet from the page. And I'm suddenly seeing Ron shouting, Hermione, Hermione, in all caps in this chapter, as exactly the echo to that moment between Harry and Ginny. He is turning into Molly. Yes. In the last chapter, he made tea. And in this chapter, he's like yelling the name of a woman who's been tortured. Oh. Ron is becoming Molly. And we love him for it. <laughs> we really do. He's going to start making soup. <laughs> then he also becomes this incredible warrior with Pettigrew, thinking to steal the wand from Pettigrew and, and then trying to prevent Pettigrew from dying by Voldemort's enchanted hand. He is so sharp in this scene, right? He remembers the Deluminator and that right now there's light in the Deluminator. It's incredible how distraught he is and yet his presence of mind. The other moment that I love that connects to Legacy is that he rushes into the scene when he's rescuing Hermione and he's using the wand and he says Expelliarmus. And so there's also this influence of Harry's kind of magical legacy and not even on a like, ethical, I don't want to hurt anyone way, but just like in a strategic, this is an effective spell to use in a situation like this way. And I learned it in Dumbledore's army. Yeah. Like there's that whole legacy of that friendship and that the shared fight that they're in. I love seeing that too. I'm just going to say it. He is sexy in this chapter. Even with like blood in his mouth. Everything about him. I'm like, yes, Ron. It suddenly became so clear to me why Hermione loves him. I'm like, he will literally do anything for her and will be smart and focused. And I'm like, yes, of course, that's what you want in your life. You want a partner who will knock down doors and do whatever they can. And I will never make a joke about Hermione being too good for Ron again. And you know what he doesn't do when they're in the jail cell? He doesn't say, Harry, why the hell did you say Voldemort's name? You know, like there's such an absence of blame. You know, what we've seen happen earlier in this book, none of that shows up. Ugh, so true. I didn't notice that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f***? 
are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Okay, but I'm going to steal your thunder right now and say we have to talk about Draco. Uh, let's do it. So he has just a legacy of ambivalence. It's so intense. Right? It's true ambivalence. He wants to please Voldemort, but he doesn't want to kill Dumbledore. And like it tortures him, it tears him in part. And he it's that's not even about wanting to please Voldemort. He wants to save his father. And I've just reread book two and him wanting to please his father goes back to book two. Right. In Borgen and Burks, he is trying to get his father's attention and is trying to have him say you're better than Harry Potter. And Lucius just rejects him at every turn. And here he's still sort of just trying to please his father and yet cannot get himself to turn in Hermione, Ron, and Harry, at least within plausible deniability. As soon as he can plausibly say, I don't know if that's Harry, I'm not sure which Weasley that is, he will take that. And then once it becomes clear that he can't, he begrudgingly admits it. But yeah, it's just a legacy of not quite being brave enough to be a hero, and yet clearly resisting as best as he can. The resistance is what really struck me this time. Like, he keeps obfuscating. Is this Hermione? Well, it could be, maybe, yeah. And then about Ron, he's really sowing so much doubt. These people know each other well, and he's he keeps kind of pointing to the potential that it isn't them. And it feels like he is stuck in legacy, right? Like... He is in, and we've talked about this many times before, not just in the physical place, but in the family structure. And and now in a social structure, that means like if he does anything to disrupt this too much, then he's in physical danger. And he was in book six too, with the mission that he was given by Voldemort. So I feel like legacy can be a beautiful inheritance, but it can also be a trap, which so limits what you can do with your life. 
or it can be an excuse, right? I remember mm. it, a big part of my education in elementary school was we were taught about the legacy of Native people in California. And it was basically a legacy of atrocity. And I remember thinking, this isn't my legacy. My parents are immigrants. And I just tuned out from it because I used my family's legacy as an excuse to not learn another legacy that I inherited. Oh, I really resonate with that. As someone who has both my parents are Dutch, but I was born and raised in England. Whenever there were bits of English history that I didn't like, I was like, oh, I'm Dutch. And then when there were bits <laughs> that I did, I was like, I'm so proud to be English, right? Like there was a, a fallacy that I was able to choose which legacy I wanted to inherit. And I don't think we get to play that game. No, I, I was born in Van Nuys, California. Like right. that is my legacy. Admittedly, I would like to think that I am more mature about it now than I was when I was nine years old. But yeah, I think that legacies... They can simultaneously be something that we build and cultivate, and yet the ones that we inherit, we absolutely cannot reject. Yeah, it's so interesting. One of the things that I feel like I learned about when I moved to America was the idea of legacy kids, access to a university because your parents went there or because you have family members that went there. And no doubt that happens in England too, absolutely. But the like overt way it was talked about in America, I was like, what? You can just be like, oh, he's a legacy kid. That explains it. Was so was so foreign to me. And it, it also points to the way in which legacy can be this kind of access to a club. It's also institutionalized in American universities. That's right. It's not just institutionalized in terms of, oh, your father went here, so you have a leg up. It's also institutionalized in sailing does not bring in any money for Harvard the way that football games do or the way that basketball teams do. Mm. And yet sailing is considered a like sport that's worth being recruited for. And that is only because it is a backdoor excuse to let in rich legacy kids. So not only is there a history of legacy, there's a history of people being ashamed of legacy and then creating false institutions of, I was a recruited skier. I'm like, who? no, that's not a thing. You're a legacy student. Your dad went here. Ah. And you, you're also a very good skier. Congratulations. I'm very good at lying on a beach. Like these are <laughs> recreational sports. There should be an Olympic sport for lying in the beach. I would win. I like that sport very, very much. <laughs> I want to make sure that we talk about Voldemort just a moment, because a lot of this chapter includes Harry having these flashes of insight back into Voldemort's experience. And he is far, far away beyond the apparition zone. And he is hoping to learn more about the Elder Wand. And he finds this kind of sickly old skeletal figure who is Grindelwald, and says, you know, tell me what you know. And Grindelwald is just delighting in the fact that he doesn't have anything to say. He says, I never had it. Your search is fruitless. You will never have it. You will never find it. Grindelwald definitely knows where it is too. It's so delicious. And so ultimately Voldemort kills him. And I feel like Grindelwald is looking at Voldemort like no one ever has, right? They are the closest to one another in some way. And Grindelwald is telling him, you're making the wrong choice. Not in a compassionate way. He's like, you're stupid. This is fruitless. And still Voldemort can't hear it. He loses his cool. He's reckless and just ends up killing him. Even though if they'd had, you know, a cup of tea together, maybe we could have seen a different ending of the book. But 
it just feels like maybe sometimes we're, we're so deep into it that we can't escape the legacy we've chosen. Yeah, I, definitely with Grindelwald too, though, right? Because Grindelwald is like, I've done too many evil things. I, I can imagine a different version of this of Grindelwald being like, I've made too many mistakes. I am telling you nothing. But instead, he's like, yeah, I'm a bad guy. I can't help you here. <laughs> Doesn't even care that he's about to die. He's not scared. Right. He has nothing else to live for. He's sort of taking joy in this one last moment of frustrating someone. He's saying, I was frustrated in my mission. Now you're frustrated in yours. And it's a legacy of people trying to exert supremacy and failing. Hmm. Is there anywhere else in the chapter that you see this theme of legacy? Ugh, Luna's legacy. Yes. They come and it's just like the best opening line of like, oh, Harry and Ron, I was hoping you weren't going to get caught. So there's just this legacy of compassion and of calmness. And the real legacy that I see is I sort of see Ollivander joining her friendship mural. Mm. Like she and Ollivander have really become friends and she's taken care of him and she is sharing his story. She's like, Mr. Ollivander has been here for a really long time. There's no way out. She's sharing her story. She's like, I tried to get out too. You shouldn't even try. Her legacy of saintliness is just like shining right through. The thing that I really saw the legacy being was her Ravenclawness. The fact that as soon as they walk in, she's in that problem solving mode of like, here's the nail. Let's make sure we can get you free that they've tried all of these ways out. And I don't know, that was a moment of inheritance of that Ravenclaw identity for me that really came through. And I have to assume Mr. Ollivander is a Ravenclaw. I mean, he has to be. So I just suddenly was like, oh, there's also like this intergenerational Ravenclaw connection maybe that's happened. Yeah, I was. it was wonderful to see her and, and I'm so glad they escaped. So Casper, it is now time for Pardace, and it's not just our last Pardace of this book, but it is your last Pardace as a host of Harry Potter in the Sacred Text. You've been replaced. You can't take it back. I'm excited about Matt. That genuinely makes me really sad because I love Pardace. You and I can do it just privately. Okay. I've chosen a sentence. Thank you. And it comes from the beginning of the chapter. Harry saw a ghostly white shape above him and realized it was an albino peacock. Harry saw a ghostly white shape above him and realized it was an albino peacock. What a horrible sentence. It's like my worst nightmare. It's kind of beautiful, though. Well, let's talk about it. So, Pshat, let's understand what's happening in the text just on a kind of rational narrative level. Where are we? What's going on? So the Snatchers and all of the Snatched arrive at Malfoy Manor and Harry looks up and sees this white peacock creeping him out. Yeah, I also love the image of this peacock maybe on a gate or on the wall or something. And the fact that Harry describes it as a ghostly white shape. I mean, it could just be a peacock with its feathers down, right? Like a small kind of little bundle. But I can also imagine this peacock in full display. So you have this kind of translucent semicircle that's sitting on this gate. There's something imposing, something dominant, something unusual about this place, which of course we know it, it, it is an unusual place. Let's move to Remez. Vanessa, you're going to choose a word from this sentence that we're going to trace through the entire books. Let me read it to you again. 
Harry saw a ghostly white shape above him and realised it was an albino peacock. I choose the word ghostly for 500, Alex. (laughs) So obviously the first place my mind goes is thinking about all the ghost characters, the Red Baron, Nearly Headless Nick, and all of the ghosts that we've met so far are in Hogwarts. So there's something that connects for me ghosts with places. And so this ghostly vision of this peacock has something very Malfoy Manor about it. Like part of me wonders if this peacock is enchanted to actually be in full plume all the time. You know, every time there's a guest, does the peacock kind of show himself in all his glory? I'm also reminded of the ghosts that are still going to show up in this book, right? Dumbledore is going to show up in King's Cross. And I mean, the word ghost shows up when he sees his parents and Sirius and Lupin, it's they were neither ghosts nor truly flesh. Hmm. And then also in this book, they look for the ghost of Rowena Ravenclaw, and that's the last horcrux that they need to hunt. That also connects to the, the hallows of the Resurrection Stone, right? We see Harry desperately taking out the snitch later in this chapter and like just being like, can it do something now, please? So there's this sense of carrying the ghosts of the people he loves with him. Yeah. Um, And I mean, like he thinks that he's talking to a Dumbledore ghost whenever he pulls out the mirror. So I think that what I'm being struck by is the mystery of ghosts. Like you don't know if something is ever really a ghost. There are all these politics of ghosts, right? Like nearly headless Nick wants to be a different kind of ghost. He wants to be a beheaded ghost, right? Like there's a lot of ambiguity with ghosts. Yeah. That sense of being part of and also not quite also is echoed in the fact this is an albino peacock. You know, so often people who are visually different from the kind of dominant group belong, but also don't belong. And that we see with Fenrir in in this chapter, like we've talked about. Let's move to Drush. So this is where it's on us to find some message that we would share based on this piece of text, if we were reading it as part of a liturgy. What would you preach based on this sentence? I'll, I'll, I'll read it once more. Harry saw a ghostly white shape above him and realized it was an albino peacock. I guess I would want to preach on how I want to welcome people. Hmm. I don't welcome people. I keep my back door open and people arrive. I'm like, go through the back door and just like, come on in. Part of me likes that about myself, that it's like, my door is open. Come on in. Not having a formal welcome And like the Malfoys are obviously trying to set a very specific tone by having these white peacocks, right, of of wealth. And I think the Malfoys are in control of some of what these white peacocks symbolize, but not all of what they symbolize. So I think I would preach on, you know, setting an intention around welcoming people. I want people to feel this when they come into my home or when they see me for the first time in a while. And like, rather than just like my giving in to the awkwardness, I would preach about how each of us can set an intention with welcoming. So you're telling me you're going to replace your doorbell with a sort of like t-shirt gun that just like shoots our merch at anyone who wants to walk past. Oh my God. It's amazing how you hear my real meaning. (laughs) Even when I don't have the gall to say it. (laughs) What about you? What would you preach on? The thing that strikes me, and it's really inspired by what we talked about of Harry thinking that he's entering a place where he's going to die. And that in even that moment, we just like see random stuff. I think sometimes we dramatize or we, I don't want to say we like make it more meaningful, make it more more intense, but like 
death can become such a big thing that you forget that little things happen all the time around it and before it. And that the last thing you notice maybe is the smell of the perfume of the person who's caring for you. Or the sound of the beeping of the heart monitor. Right. I remember like the one time in my life I really thought I was going to die. I noticed that I was being bitten by bugs. (laughs) I was like, "Ugh, they're mosquitoes. And like, it was a real thought that I had as I also thought I was dying. Totally. I wasn't dying. Thank goodness. But I guess I I, want to point to the ordinariness of death, that it happens all the time and everywhere and to everyone. And so it is the ordinary things in life that we notice throughout life and also in the moments of death. Yeah, I think that's what I'd preach about. Let's think about our sewed. And when I say think about, I want to say receive, because that's what I love about this practice. It's not actually about our like making something happen or figuring something out. It's about our openness and our intentionality to be receptive to a sewed that might arrive. So I'm going to read this one more time. We'll have just a moment of quiet and see if a sewed lands somewhere in the room. Harry saw a ghostly white shape above him and realized it was an albino peacock. So I'm just thinking of, you know, the history of human relationships with birds, right? Like we would not have thought to try to fly without birds. Like birds are the reason that I can live 3,000 miles away from my family. There's this great story about my stepdaughter who was looking into a bird's nest when she was two or three years old. They thought it was empty, but the bird flew out and hit her in the forehead and she was bleeding like immediately. And she turned to Peter and went, Papa, did you see the bird? And right, like there's just something majestic and scary and sad about birds. What about you? What sode came to you? Honestly, this is such a dreadful sode. But if you read Albino backwards, <laughs> you get Onibla, which reminded me of the great song, Oblada, which reminded me of my dad, because like that's a song he would always sing just gleefully and with abandon. And there's something like outrageous about an animal like an albino peacock. And there's, I just love how life has things that live like with abandon and just so full of the thing that it is that it just can't help like transcending its boundaries in song. And so I'm just thinking about like, I'm thinking about my dad on a Saturday morning singing Oh Bloody Oh Bloody <laughs> Well, I'll let it slide because it's your last part ace. <laughs> I don't choose what the sode is. It just <laughs> arrives. I'm an innocent victim of this sode. <laughs> well, that was a delightfully strange last part ace, Casper. Thank you so much. Thank you. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. 
They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Our voicemail this week is from Abigail. This voicemail is really lovely, but we have to offer a trigger warning with it. She talks about sexual assault and the grief associated with sexual assault and suicidal thoughts as a result of sexual assault. And so we recommend that you fast forward by a couple of minutes and find us at Blessings if that is something that you would like to skip. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and everyone at the Secret Text team. Two months ago, I put on a mask, screened myself for COVID, and went to court to testify against my sexual abuser. The three long, surreal days on the stand were the culmination of years of investigative and court proceedings following years of abuse and interactions with the man who hurt me. It has defined my adolescence and shaped my young adulthood. I've drawn a lot of comfort in the characters of Harry Potter throughout this process, and there are countless ways I can and do draw parallels between myself and the story. But over the past few months, I've found myself thinking primarily about the Battle of Hogwarts. By this point, Harry and his co-conspirators have been fighting Voldemort and his regime for years. Throughout the books, they are traumatized again and again and again and are never able to process their experiences because the danger is never over. There are still tangible tasks that have to be accomplished. A whole group of people still actively want to harm them. There are horcruxes to find. But then it just ends. The Battle of Hogwarts lasts one long, horrible night, and at the end, Voldemort is dead. The war is over. They won. There's no battle left to fight. For the first time since Harry has been a wizard, there's stillness. The weeks after the trial ended, I felt more suicidal than I'd been for months, and I didn't understand it because this thing that I hated that had broken me down and practically eviscerated me was over. And I thought I should feel happy, or at the very least relieved. But I didn't feel that. Instead, I felt suffocated by the silence. I felt anger and hurt and grief, untethered and unmoored. 
it's difficult to find the right words to describe my feelings around the trial being over, but I do know that its conclusion has not, as many promised, left me immediately feeling better. And you know, that's okay. Whether or not I wanted it to be, it was a gigantic part of my life, and only in the stillness am I finally able to begin processing everything that happened. And it's okay that that feels hard and terrible. We see Harry, Ginny, Hermione, and Ron 19 years later, and they've carved out lives for themselves and moved on. But I suspect that the months, maybe even years after the battle ended, were probably really, really hard for them and for everyone else who fought and lost. I want to offer them a blessing and a blessing to all those who have seen the quote unquote end of a negative experience only to find that like most things in life, the so-called end doesn't mean clean cut black and white happiness. A switch doesn't just flip. You're allowed to feel sad and angry and whatever else you need to feel. And it's okay that you don't feel okay. Hang in there. Your 19 years later will come. Thank you for the beautiful work you do at Not Sorry Productions. It has been a truly positive force in my life, and I am profoundly grateful. You know what? Your voicemail reminds me of a good friend of mine had a long battle with cancer. And while she had it, she had this just like really renewed lease on life and was so inspired to do so many things. And then her chemo treatment was finished, and there's this great tradition in many chemo lounges that you ring the bell when you do your final chemo treatment. And she rang the bell and she described to me that a profound depression just overtook her in that moment. And when she was declared in remission, she went through just this horrible and quite prolonged depression. And I think that you're exactly right. We think that there are endings to things, right? And even though your cancer is in remission, you will never go back to being the person you were before cancer. And even though this trial was over, it's not as though you can go back to being a person who didn't have this horrible experience. And I think there's just such wisdom and such a great teaching in what you are sharing as a reminder to all of us that, you know, our feelings are cyclical and they can come up in all sorts of ways and, and that we need to be patient with ourselves with those feelings. And I I just love your invitation that we will all have our 19 years later. Yeah, it makes me completely rethink how to read these last couple of chapters that we're going to be reading and to look for maybe the signs that are imposed from the outside. Like, oh, yay, it's done. Like, we've achieved this goal. And actually, you know, as you've helped us see, that crossing of a threshold is a crossing of a threshold but it doesn't mean that everything else around it suddenly changes. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone in this chapter. And there are a plethora of characters and I want to bless everyone, but why don't you share first? I want to bless Hermione because similar to our voicemail today, like the torture is ending but this is going to follow her forever, right? She is going to have the physical scars of this and the emotional scars of this for the rest of her life. And I want to bless her for experiencing this trauma. It's a trauma that no one should have to experience and that far too many people on this earth have. And it's now a part of her. And so I just, I want to acknowledge that through a blessing. Yeah. 
What about you, Casper? Who would you like to bless? I think I want to bless Dean. Mm. You know, we just have a glimpse of him in this chapter for all the horrors that the trio withstand throughout this book. And even with Ron leaving and returning, they have each other. And Dean, we see in this moment on his own, or at least he's been on his own. He's gone through the snatching process that who knows if he was tortured, right? Like we we know so little about his experience. I guess I want to point to Dean as... I want to point to so many of the, the smaller characters, at least in the eyes of this book, right? In the gaze of us as readers and to help us see the isolation in captivity, the fear of resistance, the courage that it has taken for Dean to be part of this movement to stop Voldemort. And I just find that all the more incredible to know that he was kind of doing it on his own. So a blessing for Dean. Amen. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can find listeners who are discussing the episodes in our Facebook common room. Join our local groups and come and join the community of people who are supporting us on Patreon. They get an amazing sacred imagination from Casper every month. And you can leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 24, The Wandmaker, through the theme of mystery, with special guest Hannah McGregor from Witch, Please. This episode is produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we're distributed by Acast. And thank you to Abigail for this week's voicemail, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paulzell. Oh, bloody, oh, so bloody, life goes on, oh, life goes on. In a couple of years, we, we have built a home, sweet home. Bum, 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 bum,